Psalm 119 again, uh, this time verses 89 to 96. Um, and I'll leave Michael to pronounce the way this, uh, this letter is, uh, is said. Um, the NIV gives it as L-A-M-E-D-H, and I'm not quite sure how you say that. Lamed. Lamed? Lamed. Okay, that'll do. All right. Uh, Psalm 119, verse 89. Your word, O Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. Your faithfulness continues through all generations. You establish the earth, and it endures. Your laws endure to this day, for all things serve you. If your law had not been my delight, I would perish in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have preserved my life. Save me, for I am yours. I have sought your your precepts. The wicked are waiting to destroy me, but I ponder on your statutes. To all perfection I see a limit, but your commands are boundless. Let's pray. Um, Would you like to pray, Michael, when you come up? I'll pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that uh, we can come again to hear more from this psalm. We ask that you'll still our hearts, uh, take away the distractions, and uh, help us to listen to mull over in our minds the things that we're hearing um, to hear your word and you speaking to us Amen When I gave these talks previously actually someone said in a question um, don't you think it's ironic it was really one of those questions that was really a point a very good point don't you think it's wonderful but also ironic that the guy who wrote this psalm his words have been on the word of God have become the word of God but that, you know, he's, he's there celebrating the word of God and his words God has used uh, as his own words. And, um, and so uh, and that, that is a remarkable thing. Uh, also because it shows us how human response is part of the word of God itself, how a human being talking to God or about God is actually also God's word to us, to tell us and to... Uh, what? To turn us and 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 thank you. Right, good. Um, almost. Okay, amazing. Um, now, for this session in particular, I want to look at um, the the idea that the word of God preserves us. That the word of God is um, a lifesaver, as far as we're concerned. Hence, the cheesy image of the life-saving thing there behind me. And I want to begin by saying that are talking about the uncertainty of living in a world in which the only guarantee we have really is, is change. Now, it was only months ago that... Um, well, no, sorry, it was only weeks ago, really, that we had uh, the news that a volcano had erupted in Iceland. And if, can anyone here actually pronounce the name of the volcano? No? No, no, no Icelandic speaker? The Mount Wheelbarrow. Yes, I think that mountain in Iceland is probably as good as will come. Notice the newsreaders very carefully talking themselves, <laughs> talking their way around it, 
Um, and we actually had uh, Lee Hatcher from Sky News speaking at our church as a Christian, and he was uh, he was saying that you know they were very careful as they uh, they talk around this this terrible word word, uh, word that they have to uh, they have to kind of have. And it's only uh, a few weeks that this volcano erupted and completely disrupted the Western way of life. It was only just one sort of fraction of what nature can do. And yet, air travel, that sort of staple of what we, what we think makes our world tick, grinds to a halt. And at that moment, just a little bit, you could, you could see the, the, disba- the disproportion there, the imbalance between what nature can do and what, and what nature will do, inevitably, and what human beings think they can do. The mastery of the planet that we think we have is disrupted because, uh, because nature does something, uh, just lifts its little finger. Or as we know, as we Christians know, uh, God, in fact, just lifts his little finger. We know, now I'm not sure whether you'll feel particularly upset about that uh, particular volcano. It didn't really affect us down this end of the earth. But it's a reflection of how our mastery, our, our, the feeling of permanence that we human beings have is in fact an illusion. That the only thing we can really count on in our lives is not permanence, but in fact uh, a lack of permanence. Uh, the, the fact that things are changing and that they are changeable. That we have a very fingernail-like grasp on our planet, in fact, and on life. That the solidity of our cities and our constructions and our buildings is very, very fragile. It only took a few minutes to bring down those enormous skyscrapers in New York those buildings that must have looked like they would stand for centuries. It's a, few, a couple of tiny planes, really, and they come collapsing down. And so that solidity, that permanence, it only takes a, a few jitters in the stock market and our financial prosperity is kind of taken from us. You know? And so and I know people, people sitting here in Australia are affected directly by the things that happened there. Our, our, our lives not nearly as secure and solid as we like to think... Uh, that they are. Whatever your take on it, our life is fragile and insecure. We are frail. Whatever steps we take to secure ourselves, we're extremely vulnerable creatures. We live relatively short and insecure lives. We aren't made of particularly durable material, you might have noticed. It doesn't take much to sweep us away. For example, we're we're conditioned to live within a very narrow range of temperatures in the universe. The swine flu scare shows us that a few microscopic bugs, or reminds us at least, that a few microscopic bugs could cause widespread devastation within a few months. As Isaiah the prophet said, all flesh is as grass. All flesh is as grass. And all its beauty is like the flower of the field. Or as another great poet once said, Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It's a tale told by an idiot. How do you like that? Your life is a tale told by an idiot. Thank you, William Shakespeare. Full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. But it's not only our frailty that makes our life vulnerable, that uh, makes, our, makes us vulnerable to the things that happen around us. 
gives us insecurity. It's our own inconstancy, our own changeableness, our own lack of consistency, our fickleness even to ourselves, our faithlessness. We love to think that we live by the creed to our own self be true, to your own self be true, but to determine which self one ought to be true to is more difficult than you think. I don't know if you've ever been struck by how difficult it is as a human being to make promises uh, that you can be confident that you'll keep. The only promises you can really be confident that you'll keep uh, are that you'll hurt someone. I mean, that's what we really ought to say at weddings, isn't it, to, to our uh, husband or wife-to-be. We ought to say, well, I, I promise, the only promise I can be sure that I'll keep to you is that I will hurt you. I will wrong you. And we can be sure, absolutely confident that you will do those things. But of other promises, well, uh, it's hard for us even to guarantee our own... We, we can in the moment say, look, I, I promise, but we can't guarantee our own truth to our own promises, can we? We can't even say that I will feel like that or that I will act in that way in a few years' time. My experience of parenthood has taught me not to make promises as much as I possibly can, partly because children have such good memories. <laughs> They're good at keeping accounts, aren't they? Um, you promised, Dad. Yes, yes, I did, but I'm a fickle human being and you ought not to take my promises, I should say. Uh, so I don't make, you know, no promises, we say, because we want the freedom to change your mind because we know that we probably will. Because I'm frail and forgetful and because I want people to think the best of me and because I don't know my own mind, my word is often not my bond. I cannot really, even on my best intentions, I cannot even rely, I should say, on my best intentions to carry me through. Just willing something isn't enough for me to get it done. You see, we are not constant. There's a gap between our will, our intentions and our actions that we can never quite ma- nail down. Who of us hasn't said something that we've later regretted? Who among us can say we haven't had the odd moment when we could say later that, yes, well, I did that. I, you know, my, the person owning my body at that time did that, but that's not true. I can't see how that what happened there was true to who I really am. I, I can't square it with what I know of myself. Um, I think, you know, some, something took over then at that moment. You know, I think that rage that so many of us have within us, um, that shortness of temper, that uh, lack of patience, that grumpiness, those characteristics that bubble up to the surface. Uh, the surface and I, when I talk to Sydney people, I say, usually when you're driving, but everyone says it's just bliss driving around here. So, um, so maybe that's not the, the time when you lose patience. Or when, but perhaps when, it's when you're dealing with government departments or when you're dealing with, uh, with children. Perhaps that's the moment that some, you seem... You wouldn't call yourself a grumpy person, but all of a sudden, there you are. You're not being constant. You're somehow at odds with even what you want to be. I, I don't think I'm a grumpy person. My wife said to me, oh, oh yes, yes, yeah, you, you're very grumpy. Everyone knows you as grumpy. <laughs> She's very encouraging. Uh, you, know, you don't think of yourself as an angry person, but there you go, losing your temper again. The great reformer John Calvin... Um, once said uh, and he actually had great insights into the human character that's probably his that's where he should be known in one sense is his great anthropological insights he knew humanity the reason he I think this is a great insight he said in truth we must seek for our constancy other elsewhere than in ourselves we must seek for our constancy elsewhere than in ourselves 
It's the complete opposite of the way um, we in the modern world of expensive therapy tell people to operate, isn't it? We, we send them on a mission to look inwards to find their own true meaning, to seek for something solid and reliable within themselves. We say, you'll know, we say to teenagers, you'll know when it's the right time. How will I know? Because you'll just know. Because everything will be right. You'll, you'll feel it inside. You'll know who you are. That's, that's terrible counsel. Because when we look inside ourselves, we see only tension and paradox and inconstancy. We, that's disastrous, I reckon. If it's security and steadfastness and reliability we need in a world full of change, then we can't find it by looking inwards. No wonder so many of us are depressed. We can't depend on ourselves even to be true to ourselves. And actually, what Calvin said was that a bit of self-examination wasn't a bad thing because if you looked inside yourself for long enough, you'd realise... You don't have to look for very long. You realise that there must be, there must be a God. You must need God to make your life meaningful, to, to understand who you are. You, you need to look outside of yourself, to look inside, to realise that looking inside is futile and that you need to look outside to God to make sense of yourself and who you are. As the hymn writer says, Fail, frail as summer's flower we flourish. These are, I love these lines. Blows the wind and it is gone. And how does he conclude? But while mortals rise and perish, God endures unchanging on. You see, the word of God is the one fixed point in the cosmos. It's the one fixed point, God and his word. And that's what we get from verses 18. I thought I'd never get to the text. Here it is, um, verse 89 from our section uh, for this session, Alamed, the Hebrew letter L. The one word of God is the one fixed point in the, in, the, in the cosmos. Now you remember from this morning that Psalm 119 is that great ABC of praise to God for his word. And so this one is now, this is uh, section L. Here's uh, section L. Um, there will be a test on these later on. Um, uh, yes, never mind. Uh, the theme of today's short section, you have to be careful. We have some overseas students at Moore College and you do have to be careful when you say sarcastic things like that because English is a second language. People take you seriously, especially if you're talking about tests because assessment's a very important thing if you're an overseas student, especially, and so you say, there will be a test on that later on. The, the uh, Australian-born students chuckle away, but then, you know, the overseas students are kind of... <laughs> so, yeah, it's really not fair. <laughs> very unfair. The theme of today's short section, of this short section for this session, is that the one fixed point in the entire changing cosmos, in the whirl of the cosmos, the eye in the storm, is the word of God. That's verse 89, isn't it? Your word, O Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. In complete contrast to our human words that waft away, that are gone on the wind, that are inconstant, the Lord's word is enduring. And it's a word spoken into the very atoms of things. It stands fixed in the heavens. It's a guiding star when all around is chaos and movement. Now what does he mean? I don't think he means that there's a banner attached to Pluto with the Ten Commandments written on it or anything like that. In what sense does the word of God have a claim on eternity? Well, have a look at verse 90. What does that say? Your faithfulness continues throughout all generations. You establish the earth and it endures. 
It has to do with God's character, doesn't it? Your word is eternal, it stands firm, because your faithfulness right, continues through all generations. It's about who he is. It is eternal, it's fixed in the cosmos because of who God is. God is the creator and God is faithful. It isn't just that his word is chiselled in stone or stored on Google's indestructible hard drives, which is more indestructible than stone, I'm given to understand. It is that his word is a true reflection of his divine character. It's, it's long-standing and enduring because God is long-standing and enduring because he is faithful throughout all generations, faithful to his promises and faithful to his people. Now you know how I said every word of every verse, every verse of the psalm contains a remember a word word. Well, actually, this is one of the very few exceptions. That's verse 90, and you can see that instead of the word word that's in it, law, decrees, statutes, precepts, laws, commands, laws, promises, blah blah. Instead of one of those word words, what we have here is the word faithfulness. And it's a way of triple underlining the word faithfulness, isn't it? Because what he's saying is, look, instead of... It, it's, like, it's like a sort of brilliant flash of colour that draws our eyes on this vast canvas here. Our eyes drawn to that word. Faithfulness must be really important here for his description of what the word of God is like. It's faithfulness, this word with triple underline. So faithfulness, God is faithful. That's what makes his word endure, because of who he is. But secondly, it's because he's the creator who established the world itself. He set the world, the earth, in place. The most permanent thing we human beings know. If it endures, it's because it's made by a God who out-endures even it. It goes on and lasts because he knows it intimately. Because he designed the ways in which it fits together. There's a kind of natural harmony of the commands and promises of God with the created world in which we live. It endures because he endures, because he's faithful, but also because he made it. Sometimes I think we find this hard to believe. A natural harmony between the commands and words and promises of God and the world in which we live. We find this hard to believe as the secular worldview becomes more and more normalised, as the ethical thinking of our community becomes less and less Christianised and more and more a matter of utilitarianism, a matter of what works, a matter of freedom. As long as those, when those principles come to the surface and Christian principles die off, I think we, it seems odder and odder for us to think of the, world, the word of God as somehow natural, as somehow in the essence of things, it will seem less in harmony with the way things are. But this psalm is telling us, no, God's word is in the very rocks. God's word is ingrained in the world he created in some way. Now, when you drive north of Sydney, if you've ever done that, I, this is just my, uh, my own um, Experience. I mean, you, you could draw on experience from driving around here too. But on the, this is on the F3 to Newcastle. Uh, what's remarkable about that drive is the amount of cuttings that have been made through the, through the sandstone. And you see there the layer upon layer of ancient rock that's bedded down, this solid. You just get the impression that under our feet, instead of seeing the kind of bushfire-ridden um, bush that's there, you see just how solid what we've got underneath us is, how, how firm 
the, the world is. You see just the kind of the strata that are there laid down with great antiquity and solidity under our feet. But it's God who established those rocks. It's God who predates even them. And it's God who stops them from crumbling. If they have permanence, it's because it's God's permanence. The permanence of the rocks is only a reflection of God's own permanence. For, as the psalmist puts it, all things serve you. That's verse 91. Your laws endure to this day for all things serve you. There may be a myriad of difficulties swirling around about you even this morning. You may be uncertain of the people in your life. The people you've trusted the most are perhaps that, that trust is unravelling. Um, perhaps the people that you've, you've loved uh, deeply have tr- pr- proven inconstant, uh, untrue to their word, devious. You may be financially less secure than you were even 18 months ago. That's a reality I, I know is true for many people. Uh, I know people who've lost their jobs uh, recently, uh, we're relatively protected from this in Australia, but an English friend of mine lost £100,000 in an instant. Not a rich person. You may have less certainty then about your career than you were assuming you might have. You might have uh, uncertainty about your future well-being. You may be particularly under attack by Satan at the moment. You might be under under real temptation to sin. It may be that even this weekend you're waiting, awaiting medical news. You're awaiting a phone call from a medical practitioner that may not be good news. I don't know. Perhaps you're in, you're, you are ill or perhaps you're in despair or in grave temptation. You may be filled with uncertainties and doubts. You may have uncertainties and doubts that you have never acknowledged to anyone else. You may look constant, you may look secure and together, but in fact, no, be feeling very uncertain and very unsure-footed, very at sea. But know this. Know that the Word of God is fixed permanently in heaven. Know that the Word of God is eternal and it stands firm. Know that it is underwritten by the very nature of the person who speaks it. Frail as summer's flower we flourish. Blows the wind and it is gone. That's you. A flower. But while mortals rise and perish, God endures unchanging on. So know that the, the word of this God is fixed in the heavens. Now I sang these words actually at the funeral of a Christian friend who died relatively young and if you sing at funerals often if you take stock and you think now what I'm singing here is actually contrary to what I'm looking at. We've got a body in a box. This Christian friend of mine uh, um, he'd uh, been diagnosed uh, with skin cancer he was an Englishman and of course they don't look for skin cancer in England and uh, so he had had unfortunately perished in his early 40s with a young son and uh, a wife and um, and uh, uh, I felt hopeless and heartless as I sang these words. God endures and change. I mean, is that really true? Is there any hope here in this scene? I'm, I'm looking at the sobbing wife. I'm looking at the body in the, in the box. You know, it felt as if we humans were, were we the vulnerable, tender ones, 
Well, we had been in one sense abandoned by God, this, this remorseless being. Perhaps he stands there insistent, insisting on just being there but no more. Going on and on and on perhaps, unchanging and immovable and so at that moment I felt perhaps uncaring. But I misunderstood that word faithfulness and its significance. And here's why it's triple underlined. Because God's permanence, God's eternity, God's unchangingness is not merely remorseless and distant and impersonal. It's faithfulness to you. It's faithfulness to his people. It's constancy for us. It's not faceless and impersonal and distant. Quite the opposite. He's faithful to his people in the Bible's way of talking about it. Out of his great love for them. The word, of the word of God fixed in the heavens, into the fabric of the universe, older than the stones, is a word for you. It's a word for your salvation. It's a word of grace to you. It's a promise. It's a promise. This, this promise is an eternal, unchanging promise made by an absolutely faithful God. A promise in your favour. It was a promise to my dear departed friend Ian who could not stay to look after his young son and his wife but it was a true promise from a faithful God and so the word of God is, is the safest place to rest in an uncertain and hostile world and that's how the psalmist keeps going on verses 92 to 96 the word of God is the safest place, it's the safest harbour in which to anchor your boat. As he goes on to say in these two verses that now look to his past experience, verse 92, If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have preserved my life. Now the psalm is not, he's not sentimental about the way the world is and what it's like to live in it. He lives in a world in which there's affliction, like he's, not just writing, he's not just kind of writing a tapestry to put on the back of his toilet door so we can all know that Kumbaya and God loves you and all the rest. This is born out of real experience of affliction and testing. He knows pain. He knows uncertainty. He knows sorrow. The danger that the psalm seems to be speaking of is not just a threat to his survival in a literal sense but the possibility that he may be spiritually cut off. It isn't specific about what, is, what caused his pain or the nature of the threat, but the remedy and its results are crystal clear, aren't they? What does he do? He wraps himself in the blanket of the word of God, in God's long-lasting law, as the best protection against whatever may come. My brother-in-law, a bit of a man's man, <laughs> my wife's brother, he wants. Uh, he, he trains guard dogs. He owns hardware stores and he trains guard dogs and he shoots little animals, as far as I can see. Um, not that there's anything wrong with that. And uh, he he um, he said to me one day, "Why don't you come up and come and visit the kennels?" And I said, "Oh, yeah, okay." And uh, so he said uh, he took me up to the kennels and they've got several German shepherds there and a Rottweiler. And he says, uh, "Look, we just wanted to train the dogs today. Do you want to just get in this suit?" Oh, okay. 
I've never been so terrified in all my life. Has anyone ever done this? <laughs> you get in this big, thick, padded suit. Now, my brother-in-law, you have to, you have to understand, has a big scar on his cheek. They're kind of curved. Uh, Alaskan Malamute did that. Um, <laughs> big scar. So that's not very promising. Anyway, you get into this big suit, and it's a padded suit. And your reason, your reason it's padded is because a dog can really, really, really bite. And uh, this 45, 50 kilo German Shepherd comes to you and um, it, it, uh, it's all under command and they actually talk to them in German. Did you know this? They actually use German commands. It's a German Shepherd. And they really do. <laughs> Sits. Plutz. Off they go. The dog seems to understand. Anyhow, they, they corners you in the corner of the field and, um, and there you are. And then my brother-in-law said, now lift up your hand to hit the dog. And so you lift up the, the hand and the dog latches onto your arm and uh, it won't let go and you can pick the dog up and wave it around like this and, uh, it, it, and then he gives another command and the teeth sink in right? and, I mean, and you can see the dog also knows how to eyeball you and uh, it's, it's quite a remarkable and terrifying experience but if it were not for the suit it, it, uh, it would be an absolutely you would be mangled right? you are protected by this suit you are protected and secured and so it's possible kind of go. You, you can resist this terrifying moment. It's but a poor illustration in a way of what the word of God gives us against what terrors may face us. The security that it gives us. The commands and promises of God are so life-giving and life-preserving that the psalmist wears them like his padded suit He determines to immerse himself in them, reminding himself never to get, forget God's precepts. And it looks as if he's needing reassurance at this moment um, about the past value of the word of God in saving his life because the next two verses bring us into the present and into present troubles. That's verse 94 and 95. Save me, he pleads, for I am yours. I have sought out your precepts. The wicked are waiting to destroy me, but I will ponder your statutes. We shouldn't think this is a matter of trying to twist God's arm by showing him how great he is. Um, you know, I'm really great, says the psalmist. God, I, I, I really am very good. I've, I've sought out your laws and ways. And so God, please, you know, um, you know, please perform for me like some vending machine. Not at all. He's appealing to God on a much stronger footing than that on the basis that I am yours, God. I'm yours, so save me. There's an unbreakable bond between them. He belongs to God. And so because he belongs to God, he seeks out God's commands and precepts so he can do them. He does this even in the midst of being attacked by wicked people who are out to destroy him. In fact, that's his priority as a strategy. That's his insurance strategy is to go and do what God wants even when he's, being, he's under assault. He's being, uh, they're trying to trap him and ensnare him. I think... In our situation, we would, in that same situation, our tendency would be to run to the law for help or to seek self-defence in other more direct ways. Shouldn't he pick up a sword to retaliate? Shouldn't he deal with the causes of his trouble? But the psalmist's response is to bury himself more deeply in the Word of God. Why would he do this? Because the Word of God is the one fixed and reliable point he can count on. Even though the possibility of personal disaster might be right in front of him, the word of God, the word of the God who is eternal and more than that, eternally faithful, is completely trustworthy and true. 
Are you in some kind of affliction now? Perhaps it's less dramatic than the situation of the psalmist. But it may, no, it may be no less overwhelming. It may be that your reputation or your identity or even your bodily life are under threat. Turn to the word of this great God. Why? Because he's the great creator who knows what this world is like from the inside. He knows how it ticks. His word works in the world. It makes sense of it and it's good for us. But turn to the word of God because it's a word which is a promise for you. It's a revelation of God's faithfulness to you, his commitment to you. But we are insecure and vulnerable. He is safe. The psalmists say at other points, of course, that God is their strength and refuge, their very present help in trouble. He's like a citadel, a city in which you can sit secure. Now, you can sound, I could sound quite glib and trivial in saying, trite, I don't want to pass over the troubles that may be surrounding you or those, those you know with some platitude. Just read the Bible more and it'll be okay. I actually think the psalmist knows from personal experience how much is at stake here and how much the life-saving qualities of God and the Word of God are proven. Which leads us to the last section. The last verse of this section, I should say. To all perfection I see a limit, but your commands are boundless. To all things, to every human project, to every human possibility, to every human blueprint, there is an end. Every human project crumbles in the end. Our, our cities may be underwater in a century's time. The soaring of human ambitions, even on their best day, in our best days, is framed by the knowledge that we ourselves are not limitless. Every biography has the same end. Have you noticed that? Ultimately, we're not immortal. And if we are not both proud and blind, we will have realised by now that our days are not without end. But God and his word is not limited. Here is the one thing in the earth, in the universe, which is an endless perfection. The one thing that crosses the borders into the eternal. And so this is how the word of God can save your life. The psalmist himself, of course, he can only sketch out the implications for this. He can speak rather vaguely about his life being saved and preserved. He knows what God is like and he knows what God has done in the past, but he cannot see what, how God will act to keep him in the future. He doesn't exactly know what that will mean. Just how will God overcome human frailty and human faithlessness? And so this psalm, like the other psalms, presses us forward, always presses us forward, to look for something more, to a greater fulfilment, which was at this time, the time that this was written, as yet unknown and yet still to come. The New Testament tells that story, of course. It tells us of how the eternal Son of God, the eternal Son of God, shared our human frailty, exposing himself to testings and temptations Hebrews chapter 4, becoming like one of us in every way except without sin, living the life, the, the painful life we live in the human body, knowing our griefs and our sorrows from the inside. He knows what it is, what it is like to be surrounded by enemies. But it wasn't merely a tourist trip so that you just gain experience, kind of a work experience trip. And it, it certainly wasn't down here just to kind of give us a bit of sympathy. He bore his sins 
He bore our sins on his body, on the tree, freeing us from the terrible consequences of our culpable weakness and our faithlessness and our self-destructive mistakes, dying on our behalf, taking on on himself our limits so that we might be limitlessly free. And of course he did not see the decay of the grave. It makes great sense of the claims of our psalm which speaks of the eternity of the word of God that Jesus would rise from the dead and lead his people into newness of life showing us remarkably that even death cannot prevent God from being faithful to his own promises. To all perfection I see a limit. Even the beauty of human life. How can that be overcome? But your commands, your word, God, boundless. Jesus rose from the dead. God is faithful to his promises. This is then the ground for a remarkable new hope. Is it a hope you share? Is it a comfort and assurance that you yourself know? Notice how it doesn't free you from trouble. Troubles will still come in this life. Temptations will abound. Ah, if you think you've conquered temptation, wait till next week. Hmm? Struggle will succeed to struggle. That's the nature of the world we live in at the moment. But here is a promise that you will be rescued. Here is a promise that if we drill down into the word of God, we will find their permanence, security, faithfulness that we will find nowhere else. I pray at that point and then we can have some time for interaction if there's still time. Uh, God, we ask for a renewed trust in you. Um, whatever, whatever the swirling circumstances of our, our lives at the moment, whatever the, the chaos and the insecurity, disappointment, um, uh, bewilderment that we're facing, whatever, whatever pain we're in, whatever temptation we're facing, we ask, Father, now for a renewed sense of your faithfulness. We, we pray to know, as the psalmist knows, the protection of your word, the security of it. And we pray that we would rest in it. We thank you, Father, too, that you've shown us more than even the psalmist could see, uh, that your faithfulness extends even beyond the collapse of our own, our own bodies and that you are with us even as we face the last enemy. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Time for some comments or questions. really enjoyed the comments that we had, especially the contributions last time. They were helpful to me. So.
special prize for anyone? Yeah. Aha. Yeah. Thank you. And and uh, she would know about chaos. <laughs> Corrie Tim Boom, who was in the concentration camps here. Yeah. So thank you. Yeah. Yes. It doesn't take much for us to be put off. No. <laughs> it's, we are like sheep. Yes. And I, I, when yes. I saw that yesterday, I saw that, you know, what a tiny little... Yes. 19 sheep and one four by five individual. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes. Uh, being called sheep in the scriptures, it, it's not a compliment. I, I don't know if... <laughs> is it? For those who know sheep, this isn't particularly... Flattering, is it? <laughs> that's, a, that's a terrific illustration. Yes. Yes. No. Yes, a little volcano, and and oh, our air travel is, you know, <laughs> you know, there we go. We're, we're vulnerable. Yes. One more. Yes. Anyone else? Yeah. Ah, yes. Yeah. The Word of God, yeah. Yes, you know that's terrific. There, yeah, well said. You know, why did I go to the illustration about a silly dog suit? And uh, Bible had already, because because I'd been in it. <laughs> yeah. We we yes yes yes. No, <laughs> that's not. <laughs> uh, one more. One more. Thank you. They're very helpful. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean the. Yeah, that's that's brilliant. I mean, I I think actually the dog little dog in the field illustration is a good summary of the book of Revelation itself, isn't it? Which is, you know, you've got the terrible monsters, but they're all kind of get they get killed, or they're kind of you know they're all they're going to die, or or they're defeated, and so uh, 
our fear at them is kind of mis- misplaced. And, and of course, if you see the bigger picture of the Alpha and the Omega, you know, it's first and last. Yes. This is, this is Deuteronomy chapter 6 in particular, right? Where, where you're supposed to tell your children when you walk and when you're going on the road and tie it on your head and put it on your hands. And of course, in, in types of Judaism, this has become legalistic practice. This is just kind of they literally tie it, you know, they, they write up the word of God, put it in boxes and tie it in their heads. And with the greatest respect, I think that kind of misunderstands the point. The point is, remember always, and maybe those help. But uh, remember, remember, remember. The, the memory is half the half the Christian life. You know, that's uh, following God. Memory is so important, and, and um, uh, absolutely, I think it's a word. It's a word um, that Christians need to hit hear even more intensely as they remember Christ and His body and His blood shed for you, etc. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you.